Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. Welcome, Matt. Welcome. Matt, what is it that we do on Spectology? Well, this is a book club podcast. We read science fiction books, one a month, and we usually have two main episodes and then some bonus episodes. The first main episode is a pre-read where we talk about the book before we've read it, about the context, about what some interesting stuff that might be relevant to the book. Um, and then we do a post-read after we've read the book, full spoilers, talking about everything in the book, all that good stuff. Yum. For bonuses, we do all kinds of stuff. So, Such as interviews with authors from China, <laughs> which was this month's bonus episode. <laughs> yes, yes. That was very fun. I loved doing that. I really enjoyed listening to that um, since I wasn't actually involved in it. Um, yes. Yeah, so this month... Our book uh, we're doing a pre-read for right now is called A Memory Called Empire by Arcady Martin, the pen name of Anna Lyndon Weller. Yeah, it is a book actually that was suggested to us by several of our readers on Twitter. And then you had it recommended to you by Max Gladstone, who's a former guest of our, his wife, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, either either uh, Max or his wife. One of the two of them uh, recommended, to, recommended it to me. Right. So we've been getting recommendations for it, kind of like from all angles. We thought it would be a fun book to start off the uh, the decade with, I suppose. <laughs> I was oh, going to yeah. say the year and realize it's bigger than that, baby. <laughs> it sure is. I am a proponent of 2020 being the first year of a new decade. There is I mean, it clearly ridiculous is. Dicker, there is ridiculous disagreement about this. I anyone who I mean, like, <laughs> what is is it's got 2020 part of the tens? Right. No, it's, it's part got of the twenties. Goddamn right? it! No, it, it's like you and I. I'm glad that you and I are completely in agreement on this. <laughs> Don't be a pendant. Like, be right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I like to think of it as a new jazz age. Um, oh, because I like jazz. Um, so let's, you know, cheers to that. Cheers. So normally on the pre-read, we, we, and in fact, this time as well, we're going to avoid spoilers. Um, mm -hmm. but we've both read this book already. Uh, yes. so hopefully we can manage that. <laughs> yes. And, uh, uh <laughs> and we should probably talk other content warnings just like now while we're yeah. kind of talking spoilers and stuff. Um, there definitely some violence. I think in general, this is not as content warning as other stuff that we've, read um there is violence um there's pretty that happens graphic on screen, violence right but there's not as much of it as many other books that no. we've read there was some funny like gendered language that got brought up a couple of times by the like main character the like narrator character that like threw me for a loop every time it happened um it's small stuff and it's interesting given that it's you mm -hmm. know a female character written by a female author but i can't think of anything else particularly However, yeah, there's, there's, um, I mean, similar to, uh, I well, guess some actually, medical stuff. Yeah. There's a little bit of stuff about sort of medical, like surgery and whatnot. Right. And then there's of course, questions of like identity and yeah, exactly. you know, consciousness and some of this stuff, but it is not really in the kind of mind controlly way that we'd usually like be more apt to point out. Mm -hmm. Although maybe it is, ooh, <laughs> depends on what on what your definition of you is. As yeah. the main character says as much. Um, so I guess the other thing to say is we've both actually already read this book. We both mm -hmm. kind of chose it and then ended up finishing it before we got to do the pre read. So 
uh, we'll still do our best to not spoil anything and yeah. to not be too coy also. Yeah. So what kind of a book is this in general, Adrian? Yeah, I would say it is, I mean, like, you know, genre wise, I guess it's like a space opera in that it's set in a far future and like, you know, humans have conquered a good bunch of space and there's aliens and stuff like that. But like in terms of what kind of book it is like the narrative is much more about like it's a book about politics it's a book about intercultural exchange it's a book about study abroad almost (laughs) maybe not study i would say palace palace intrigue yeah that's a very good one um yeah it's a it's a you know it's it's i i think of it as like a palace intrigue political thriller that happens to be set in like an intergalactic empire on a like planet that is you know like croissant 100 percent city <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that was the i hope you like yeah. the, the star wars reference math that yeah was for you. i do um <laughs> one fun thing about the book is that it has a lot of uh imperial byzantine and imperial chinese reference going on yes um so if that's interesting to you you know you might Mm -hmm. be interested um it's also oh we should say it's the first of a trilogy yes um but mm -hmm. it stands alone very well on its own like it's not you know yes agree we'll get into this into the post read but like it definitely it's it tells its own like story and it's clearly like a story that can lead into others but it's not like you're gonna finish it and be like Oh, uh, what the fuck? Like there's, you know, I need to read two more books before I get the finish of the story. Yeah. It's very self-contained. Yeah. And as far as, you know, similar similarities to some other stuff that we've read on this, on this podcast or that you may have read, um, certainly Yoon Ha Lee's, uh, Hexarchate stories, novels. Yeah. Uh, a lot of similarities. Um, yeah. Yoon Ha Lee is, uh, has blurbed this book and is apparently a fan. Um, and I would say Anne Leckie, the um, ancillary series, definitely. Mm-hmm. We didn't read that on this uh, show, but we did read Raven Tower, another book of hers. Yeah, I'd say I, I think particularly Yoon Ha Lee, there's like a lot of like even down to some of the like technology and stuff like kind of like I kept thinking about um, I've only read the first of the Hex Arcade novels, the one we read together, Nine Fox Gambit. But uh, I kept thinking about Nine Fox Gambit while reading this book, even though that is very much like mill sci-fi and this is very much like political sci Like they're very different in a lot of ways, but also mm-hmm. they have this like clear through line between them. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think too, any, you know, any book that we've read that involves this kind of like different cultures kind of coming in contact with each other and like looking at each other. I think even... um like the last book we read, which was Stars in My Pocket, like Grains of Sand, I was actually kind of thinking about that to some degree, uh, just in terms of this, like, you know, like kind of like fish out of water, like someone from a yeah. very different I culture mean, coming in. To be, to be perfectly honest, I don't know why I didn't see this before, but I think like Killing Moon has a lot of similarities, actually. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, interesting. I actually didn't see that either, but I think you're completely right about that. Especially like the ambassador character. I mean, it's yep. just like straight up a right. very similar situation. <laughs> Although uh, there are some important differences too, but yeah. Right, right. Yeah, and it is science fiction, but I think I felt like, you know, reading it, there's some sort of like, you know, I've said this before and you uh, like, I'll, so I'll say I felt that there were some like fantasy sensibilities to the book. Um, I don't really know what that means, nor can I back it up, but that was the way I felt while reading it. 
<laughs> don't at me. Yeah. Well, we should probably talk more about that read, right, in the post right. read, maybe. Um, yeah. So if we're not going to talk about the book, what are we going to talk about, Matt? <laughs> We're going to talk about some other book. No. Um, <laughs> so um, one of the things that that uh, you actually suggested mm-hmm. this, Adrian, and I I loved it and I want to run with it. Um, there's a th- very important theme in the book, um, and it's this sort of theme of somebody who has an intellectual bent um, who comes from a politically uh, sort of weak uh, mm-hmm. position. That is to say they are like you know, maybe from a, a country that is militarily weak or, you know, right. small or, or even occupied like who finds themselves, you know, kind of in love with this culture of a large, a sort of military, very power, militarily or politically very powerful, like imperial civilization nearby. Mm. Um, that's a, a kind of a really interesting theme to me personally. I, there are a lot of stories of different people who are actual actual historical figures who are in this position that I've always found like really really right. interesting, um, and I think you know the author uh, and uh, under under her sort of given name Anna Lyndon Weller um, has published uh, significantly on this. Right. Well, on she's this a, topic. she's an so, academic. I mean, I, I, I mean, like she has another career, right. which is like she's a professor, um, and like her work is largely around. One, like the specifically in terms of like the relationship between um, uh, the Armenian culture and the Byzantine culture and specifically like Armenians living in Byzantium. Um, and the, the way I kind of came up with this was I was looking at some of her papers that she's published and one stuck out to me that was about um, Grigor Magistros. Right, right. But the, the title of the paper was something like Byzantophilia. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's Byzantophilia in the letters of Grigor Magistros. Right. Mark. I love the question mark <laughs> at the end. Like, a, great. Um, but, you know, I, I came across this paper and actually a... Um, a listener of ours, um, I like put out a call on Twitter and was like, Hey, can someone like download and send me the PDF of this paper? And, um, a listener of ours, Matt Davies, who's, uh, an academic in Australia, uh, reached out and like sent me the PDF of this. So like, thank you to him. Cause I don't have academic access to these articles. Um, but yeah, it was like, uh, I thought it would be kind of interesting to read this article and, talk about her academic work and then you had this idea of sort of expanding that to other historical types that fit into the same mold which um is a thing i don't know anything about but you know a lot about so i'm actually really interested to kind of like i read this paper i thought it was really interesting i think we can talk about it but also i think there's like a lot more to talk about so i'm kind of interested in being more the like learning position than the like you know teaching position this time around We'll have a we'll have a good discussion about this, I'm sure. Um, yeah, this is just something I've always been really interested in. Um, and obviously, you know, I I don't I'm not I'm f- so far from an expert in like Byzantine history, mm-hmm. and I don't know really very much at all about um, Anna Linden Weller's specialty. Um, so I was extremely interested to learn about Grigor Magistros, who's like this really fascinating figure. Um, and it just reminded mm-hmm. me so strongly. I mean, I was already thinking about some of these other characters while I was uh, reading the book, but it reminded me very, very strongly of of his story. Grigor Magistros's story reminded me very strongly of, uh, of some of their stories um, also. So I think one thing to say kind of at the beginning when we're talking about the sort of broad theme of somebody on the outside loving something... Um, that is just 
like powerful and dangerous to them, but loving it anyway. Um, I think that's like a fascinating theme and it kind of relates to some of some personal experiences that you and I have had in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what, how do you kind of feel personally about your own history as a, as somebody who's lived abroad and, and, you know, thinking about kind of how loving other cultures in your own life relates to this discussion? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that there's sort of like two elements, like there's the really obvious element to me, which is that like I studied abroad in college and like I thought about that experience a lot while reading this book, um, that like I studied abroad in Paris, France and, I did partially because I took French in high school and really like loved it and really kind of like, you know, I think especially growing up in rural Alaska and like it was this sort of like culture I was able to immerse myself in that was a sort of like big grand other that had like a lot of history that had like a lot of, you know, kind of like weight behind it and a lot of like, you know, cultural cachet too. like French people are cultured and like, you know, Alaska people aren't not that that's true, but that that was in my head the way it worked as a kid. Um, And so I sort of like fell in love with this like culture to the point of like visited a number of times, eventually studied abroad. Um, I think in studying abroad had the experience of like, oh, this is just like a place like anything else. And I've like been like, you know, kind of like putting it on this pedestal in my head and sort of like weirdly enough that kind of like broke the like hold that it had on me in a lot of ways. I know people, I feel like people can go one of two ways. Either they can like have this idea of this place and go and be like totally even like more entranced by the actual experience of being there. Or like you can go and be like, Oh, Oh, like I built this up a lot. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I did some degree had the later response. Um, But then too, I think there's just the other for me. I mean, you know, it's like that maybe is more obvious to me. I don't know. It's more obvious to other people, but also like I grew up in like rural Alaska and like moved out here to New York city. Right. And like, there's also this thing of like, especially in terms of like, when you think about coming from a place that's maybe more like, like backwatersy, that's a place that's less, you know, again, less cultured or less like, you know, less in the center of things and going to the place that is the center of things, at least in its own mind. Um, Like the experience of moving out here has definitely been one where like, you know, like, I don't know. I don't think of it as like Alaska culture versus like East coast or like New York city culture or whatever. But I'm sure that when I like talk to people from back home, like they think of it that way, <laughs> you know, like they hear the ways in which I've like been changed by my experiences out here. So yeah, I don't know if I have a whole lot to say specifically about it other than like that, that was the stuff that I, I feel like those are kind of my biases yeah. coming into it. My like lived experiences coming yeah. into it. What about you? Cause you've lived in a couple of places abroad. You- You've become the kind of person who says the ways in which. (laughs) Oh, to be fair, I I was always a pretentious, snotty little kid. So I was probably (laughs) saying that as a kid, too. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, I say that, too. I was just I just thought that was funny. Anyway. No, no, that's that's that's, accurate, though. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I I also studied abroad. I I lived um, in China for uh several years and uh i've studied abroad in france also as it happens Mm -hmm. and 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 i've i've traveled to a bunch of places although i haven't lived i haven't really lived anywhere unless you count like a month as living somewhere um other than other than china and france um Mm -hmm. and uh i think i think you know the 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 experience that i had actually 
um, in my own life. When I was reading this book, I didn't really think that much about my own lived experience. I mean, it certainly sort of was relevant and kind of definitely came up sort of unconsciously in all kinds of ways, I'm sure. But Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about stories that I'd heard of people who went to went to a powerful place from like a quote unquote weak place. And you got to have air yeah. quotes around all these things because this is like, the, uh, what I'm, when I say powerful and weak, I'm talking about people's perceptions. I'm not talking about like a, a, mm-hmm. some kind of objective reality. Um, you know, I, I thought about people from, for instance, Tibet who went to India or China. Mm-hmm. I thought about Native Americans. Um, mm-hmm. I thought about, um, you know, people from Japan before it modernized who went to mm-hmm. the West. Um and uh, I thought about one guy in particular who's like this incredibly fascinating guy. I don't think he's very well known that I just happened to learn about when I was in India uh, recently um, named uh, S.W. Linden La, who was uh, from a country called Sikkim, which probably people have not really heard of because it was absorbed by India. But within India, even to this day, it, re- it retains a large degree of autonomy. Um you know, I, I thought about basically people from places that like had no recourse, so to speak, mm-hmm. but who nonetheless kind of developed what I take to be like a very, very legitimate, profound personal affection for the thing that was so powerful and that was like dominating them. The culture right. that was dominating their culture, that is. Um, mm-hmm. I and, and like I think that, in, you know, I couldn't help but think like as I read it, like, you know, my experience kind of can't for all that. I know what it's like to feel alienated, like living abroad and like, you know, to feel lonely and to feel like I'll never belong or maybe I will or maybe I won't. And, you know, to go back and forth in that way that everybody does. Um, I don't think my experience will ever be quite the same as theirs because my culture was never under threat. Like my culture was never like I never I only worried about myself ever when I was sort of abroad. I never worried about my people so to speak, um, in the way that, for instance, a Native American, um, you know, would not just worry perhaps about themselves, but about like everything they knew and cared about back home. Yeah. You know? Um, right. So, you know, I think like Tisquanto is like a fascinating person to think about actually in the context of like right. this thematic dis- discussion. Cause he's a, he's somebody who became more or less a diplomat. <clears throat> I mean, he was a lot of other things besides, but I mean, he started off as one too. Like yeah. he, his, job was being like the right hand man of like the chief right and we don't really know what he thought about what he was doing and what he thought about english culture and all that sort of thing so we couldn't say for example i don't think that he like loved it or something like that with it no yeah um but we know that he got very like adept at moving within like high society with english culture because he was taken to first spain and enslaved and then made friends with his captors and convinced them to like send him back home on his right. way home, he was like, you know, his ship went to England where he was enslaved again and again, learned the language, made friends with his captors and convinced them to send him home like on their dime. Right. And this happened twice where he was able to like <clears throat> learn a new language and like befriend these like people right. of power who would apparently who would like essentially have him as like a house pet to like yeah. parade in front of their friends to be like, look at this savage that, you know, savage again in air quotes. Yeah. But this is like what they would say. And like. We also know that he did a lot of work to like attempt to 
bring about the like fall of the like people that he was supposedly helping. Like we, we know that he wasn't happy with English <laughs> culture or with yeah. the culture of the other native Americans that had taken over the land that he had like lived on because in the like yeah. 15 years that he was in Europe, his tribe mostly died out and like their enemies like came and slaughtered the rest of them and took over the land that he had grown up on. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he basically suffered through the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his, his, um, tribe was completely destroyed and, mm-hmm. you know, Plymouth was built on the ruins of what had once been his home. And it's just, it's just so fascinating to think about. Like, I think, you know, his experience obviously is also different in many ways from the experience of all these other figures, all the, all the different figures right. I think of they're all, all their experiences are different because all the political situations are different. And I think like to me that that speaks to like the fundamental sort of the fundamental like critical truth, like at the heart of these relationships, which is that the sort of power politics of the relationship is that is the is like a a dominant factor. Um, When when Anna Lyndon Weller writes about Gregor Magistros, I mean, I think one thing that's going on is, you know, when she writes about him in the back of behind every sentence is this sort of power political reality that his uh his culture was forcibly annexed by the Byzantine mm-hmm. Empire while he was alive and he couldn't do anything about it and and he sort of made the choice to kind of be on the winning side and indeed may well have like loved the winning the sort of Byzantine culture that he chose to ally himself with the whole time so let's take a step back and for folks who haven't read this paper because it's not like it's easily available or anything like that let's let's take just a little bit of a step back and talk about like Rieger Magistros and like like for one his name Magistros that's not his last name that is like Byzantium title right like he was a man who was Born and raised uh, as a essentially nobility um, in the Armenian culture and in a particular Armenian principality. Uh, and as the Byzantium Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, slowly began taking over the area that like he was born and raised in, um, he kind of went over to their side. Like he went, he lived in Byzantium for a long time. He eventually willfully gave up his lands and titles to the Byzantium emperor. And in exchange got like new titles from Byzantium, uh, in return. And, you know, was essentially my understanding was able to like still rule the same spots of land and own that land in a more or less similar kind of way. But now with the blessing of the Byzantine king and with like titles that reflected the Byzantium political and social structure instead of the Armenian political social structure. I think he was given actually different lands to rule uh, Ooh, as part he? of, okay. yeah, as part, but he was, he was, so the, the, the strategy I think the Byzantines adopted was they took, they offered the nobles a choice, like, look, you know, you can either resist us by, and, and we'll take you by force or we'll give you different, we'll compensate you for your lands, but we'll give you like these different titles right. and lands. And in some cases, just money, you know, depending on mm-hmm. who you are. And Grigor Magistros was sort of his family was very powerful. Um, they were yes. among the most powerful people in the, the in Ani, which is the, the place he was from. And so, you know, his, his like uncle was like a kingmaker or something like that. And, right. and so he was given this very rather important title. Um, and he was given sort of, and, and in the course of his service to, um, to the emperor, he was given another title and he was sort of responsible for like some military operations in Mesopotamia mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And he was very successful at all that. 
so it's it's this really interesting story of a of a person who kind of you know they 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 were faced with this like complicated political reality um that they cho- like a, a wave of like politics like came at them and they chose to try to surf it you know right. rather than be swamped by it or go under it or something right. like that and um, what i really liked about this paper was that like what anna anna linden weller again or katie martin uh her given name what, what she's doing in the paper is like making this kind of counter argument that like the typical argument as she lays it out that is made is that Grigor always had these kind of Byzant- Byzantine sympathies, this Byzantophilia, because he liked Greek culture. They were kind of, you know, the Holy Roman Empire was this sort of like, you know, viewed themselves as the successor to like Greek and Roman culture. Um and that he had these sort of like sympathies to their type of culture. And so he went over there due to those sympathies and the argument that she makes mostly by reading through what um, letters we have that he had written other people because he was a very well-educated and well-written man. And he wrote a lot as a part of just like his work. He was often writing letters for his work. Um, Like that's how you are a political operative in like a large empire in like, you know, what was his like the 1040s or whatever a lot of these letters are from um so a thousand years ago (laughs) um but like i I like that what she's partially doing is taking a look of like we can both look at like what he's saying but also take a look at that in this perspective of like he is saying these things to different people with the idea of like building a certain identity for them like he is doing politics and writing these letters like he wants them to think a certain way about himself like there's this subtext that we have to take into account as well as we need to take into account just the political reality on the ground and assume that like he's doing real politic like he's a smart well-educated man part of the ruling class like he understands the politics of the situation and like is going to work within those politics. And so instead of just coming at it from the perspective of like, well, he read a lot of Greek and liked Greek things. So like, sure, of course he goes over to the Byzantine empire. There's the question of like, well, he lived in this situation and there's like, that's an element, but also there's an element of like, you know, the emperor also told him like, you must come to Byzantium. And if you don't, we will invade you. And once you're in Byzantium, we're going to say like, you have to give up your lands or we're going to invade you. (laughs) That was the ultimate he was given. And of course it is possible to, you know, dislike a political figure, but love the culture that figure represents. You know, I mean, that happens so often in real life. I mean, how many people feel that way about their own country? Perhaps mm-hmm. so many. Um, so, I mean, I just I think this is a really interesting the, the particular character that that Grigor represents to me of this sort of um, foreign intellectual oppressed by like this mighty transcontinental empire who like looks at the culture of that empire and is and is like. Um, is intrigued and like fascinated, but still has this, you know, great mind that he's going to use to like play politics Mm -hmm. for his own purposes. You know, that's a a fascinating figure. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I identify with that sort of figure and I, I, I've, I've kind of collected this sort of group of figures like that, that I found interesting in, in, in the course of, you know, reading about, uh, you know, obviously Asia in particular has been, um, you know, my interest for a long time. So I wanted to bring up a couple of other people who this reminded me of and like maybe give little mini capsule versions of their stories. Um, The guy that I mentioned already, this guy, S.W. Linden Law, is a really interesting person who I think probably most people haven't heard of because he's um, 
not particularly famous, um, but he had a really interesting life. He was born in the in the last uh, third of the 19th century um, in what is now uh, Darjeeling, um, mm. which is in India, in the northeast part of India, near the border of Nepal and the border of Bhutan and the border of China. And it's um, it's a really interesting place. People will probably have heard of it from the tea, Darjeeling tea. Right. Um, but uh, Darjeeling, um, when it was founded, it was founded as a, a, a monastery town um, in what was then the country of Sikkim. So the sort of Himalayan, there's like a, there's like this Himalayan cultural space that like people outside of, uh, people outside of that cultural space probably are not as familiar with. There, there were once, you know, a series of different polities, um, in the Himalayan area. There were different Tibetan kingdoms, uh, like Amdo and, and so forth. There were different kind of, um, Tibetan adjacent kingdoms like Bhutan and Sikkim um, and Nepal and different Nepalese kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And in that cultural zone formed by all of those, those, you know, there was once a power politics that, that went on there, you know, I mean, it's, it's been a a long time since a lot of those polities had any kind of independence. And so a lot of people, you know, haven't talked about this for a long time, but a hundred years ago, um, power politics took place in Darjeeling. And um, so this guy, S.W. Linden Law, he was the first Sikkimese, or at least one of, but but very likely the very first Sikkimese um, boy to be given uh, an anglicized education. In the last part of the 19th century, uh, he grew up in, in monasteries. Um, his parents died when he was very young and he was raised by like relatives who were monks and he was through a strange confluence of circumstances he was sent to what ended up being one of the most excellent um anglo-indian schools in all of northeast india and he received Mm. an excellent education and at that point in time darjeeling was an extremely um diverse place so he grew up speaking 10 languages um (laughs) <laughs> everything from you know bengali to nepali to uh sikkimese to tibetan to english these aren't just different languages too they're like entirely different language families yeah. they they are they are and he was well versed in tibetan buddhism and the tibetan classics by virtue of his mon- monastic education and he also grew up speaking excellent english and being well versed in like indian indo anglo indian imperial politics and so when he was young, he took a position in the um, colonial government as a police officer. Hmm. And by virtue of his incredible skill set and languages and upbringing, being the sort of first like representative of this Sikkimese culture, at that time, Sikkim was an independent state and Tibet was an independent state. And he spoke fluent Tibetan and fluent Sikkimese and fluent English and many other languages besides. And so he had this incredible position among all these different cultures. And this was also a time when the British were interested in expanding their control and expanding their influence into the Himalayan region, as they had been for a while. But they were very interested in like preventing the Russians or um, the kind of Qing dynasty from exerting any additional control over like Tibet, you know, because of its strategic location. And so... In his position as a police officer for the Indian colonial government, S.W. Linden Law played this like really dramatic role in a, a bunch of what are now kind of forgotten 
political crises that happened in the first part of the 20th century. Yeah. So there was, for example, a short uh, war between Tibet and uh, British India in 1904-5. And there was, uh, you know, a series of conflicts between like first the Qing and then the kind of uh, warlord, Chinese warlords and, and, and Russia. Uh, everybody was trying to exert control over Tibet. And the British were trying to exert control over Sikkim. And S.W. Lindin La, throughout his, the rest of his life, he, he continued to work for the colonial government and rendered, you know, what was considered excellent service to the colonial government. He actually, at one point, met Queen Victoria. He, wow. was, he went on a trip to England and he led the first mission of uh, Tibetan boys. He, he was responsible for creating these links between Tibet and the British Empire. He mm. led this group of Tibetan boys to England to study abroad there. And uh, with he like negotiated between the Tibetan government and the British Empire to make that happen. Um, and the whole time he kind of was interested, he, he played this incredibly complicated set of overlapping roles. On the one hand, he was a proponent of like Tibetan culture broadly. On the other hand, he was a proponent of Sikkimese culture locally, which yeah. was not purely Tibetan and had its own interests and had its own political interests um, mm -hmm. that were not the same as Tibet's. On the other hand, he was an agent of the British imperial government. <laughs> right. On the other hand, he was like an agent of like colonial power. Right. On the other hand, he was a non-Indian agent of the Indian colonial government. And so he had a different role from, he had a different position than, than, than the sort of the great Anglo-Indian families who perhaps at this point had already rendered many generations of service and were kind of, you know, partly mm. integrated in, in a different way into the imperial machine. And on the other other hand, he represented Darjeeling itself. And the only reason I know about him is because he and his family were responsible for kind of creating this, for like building up Darjeeling and building up a sort of Darjeeling culture, a local culture of the sort of hill people, as they're called, uh, in the area around Darjeeling. And, and even now to this day... Um, those hill people agitate for specific political goals centered around their use of certain land and their their access mm -hmm. to certain monasteries, some of which were actually written up by S.W. Linden Law um, in his retirement after he had ceased being a police officer. He, he became in, involved in local politics. So he, he's had this incredibly fascinating life. And, and like I was reminded of him a lot because throughout his entire life, the idea that the British might just annex Sikkim was an incredibly real possibility and indeed it happened um mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. and 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 the same was a possibility for tibet and it never happened and so there's this amazing kind of i mean to me it's just like this fascinating moment where he the role he played was actually significant because he was right on the very edge of what was going to happen or not happen right <laughs> and right, i i right. just i just find him to be like a completely fascinating fascinating character so, wow, that's, that's really, I mean, so I don't know anything is the first time hearing any of his story, as you pointed out, like, it's not like he's a major historical figure in our school system or anything like that, but it, it's such a fascinating story and like kind of gets at, I think if we think about some of these 
points brought up in this paper by Weller, which is that like, you know, it's not sufficient to look at him and be like, oh, well, he really liked British stuff. And so he like became a part of like the British government, right? Like that is clearly like an insufficient way of thinking about what went on in his life and the way that he like Mm -hmm. held and weld political power. Um, you know, it's probably like to some degree, like there's probably some truth to that, right? Like there's probably some truth of like, you can't, or maybe, maybe, maybe you can, but I imagine it's much harder to be like an effective agent in that way. If you actually harbor like a lot of hatred for the culture that you're acting on behalf of, like that just becomes like a much more difficult, you know, kind of situation to be in. Um, at the same time, like there's clearly all this stuff that is like, you know, both about personal power and having like, you know, safety and political power and the ability to like, you know, have agency within your own life within like this broader system that you live in. But then also having these various identities, one to, you know, mm-hmm. like Tibetan Buddhism, but then like a specific different political polity that is not Tibet that practices Tibetan Buddhism, right? And like the way that these kinds of like different um, systems can overlap that, you know, it's not as simple as they're being, you know, it actually, it makes me think a lot about um, the art of not being governed by James C. Scott. Uh, It's a, it's a, book james c scott is a is a anthropologist actually at yale um but he he's an anthropologist who in particular he 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 studies agriculture but the way that he writes about agriculture is by writing about politics and in particular the politics of governance and the politics of not being governed um And the art of not being governed is specifically about this kind of like area that I think would include the hills going further into like Southeast Asia in particular, Um, the like kind of like mountainous and hilly regions of uh, Thailand and Cambodia and Vietnam and Laos and like a little uh, up into Southern China, Um, like all these kind of hilly regions have, you know, these areas that have like relatively that have a lot of very different and relatively complex, like political entities and systems, all of which like overlap in very weird ways. And all of which have been at sort of like been trying to keep their independence from various like colonial or empire powers for thousands of years. Like, you know, they have been trying to keep their independence from whatever various like Chinese empires are rising and falling or whatever various Indian empires are rising or falling or Southeast Asian empires that are rising and falling at the time. And the way that he talks about politics in that book is very much in this way of like, you know, it's this idea of like, you have this like center of political power and power lines that radiate out from there and get weaker and weaker as they go. So you don't have hard borders where you, it's like on this side of the border, you're, you know, Chinese and on this side of the border, you're Indian. It's rather like, well, the border areas are the areas where it's like fuzzy as to which one you actually are. And I think that, you know, this book kind of talks a lot about that, the kind of like spheres of influence. Um, and I think it's a useful uh, model for thinking about the world in a lot of ways where we tend to think about borders as like hard lines drawn in the sand. And like, maybe that's more true now with like the nation state paradigm, but also like that's not the only way for borders to work. <laughs> like borders yeah. can also be just the areas where things are more messy. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's another interesting aspect that, that we've, we've sort of not talked about yet, which I wanted to bring up, which is, um, 
S.W. Lyndon Law is, is not somebody actually who spent an enormous part of his life living abroad, so to speak, mm-hmm. unless, unless you count sort of the other parts of the Tibetan cultural sphere as being abroad. Um, he went abroad, certainly he traveled, but he, he didn't live abroad for decades or anything like that. Whereas um, another person I was interested in, oh, there's several others, but I'll, I'll bring up this right. one in particular, um, Kang Yong-hil, who was a, uh, uh, a boy born in Korea who spent most of his life in America mm. and uh, considered himself to be at least in some sense American, but never was able to attain American citizenship, despite... Um, the support of members of the Senate. <laughs> hmm. um, there were two bills um, that were submitted to the Senate uh, whose only purpose would have been to grant him citizenship and both were defeated. Um, so he had a very interesting life, this man. And and, and so uh, he represents to me like another version. So I'll, I'll say a little bit more about, about Kang Yong-hil. Kang Yong-hil is a, is a writer, a sort of a professor and a writer. Um, he was an mm. academic and he did a, most of his writing in English actually, uh, which is incredibly impressive for somebody for, for whom English is a, is a, a, actually was like his third language at least. Um, he was born in what is now North Korea um, while it was uh, ja- uh, under Japanese rule. Mm. And he witnessed a lot of um, terrible, terrible things in the colonial period, including members of his family being tortured by uh, Japanese colonial officers. Um, when he was very young, he, against his family's wishes, uh, went to Seoul um, to try to learn about Western science. That's Those are the words that he used um, when he was reminiscing about this. But he discovered that uh, the Japanese colonial government did not allow Koreans to learn Western science in Korea. Um, it was not a, a, an acceptable curriculum for the locals. Um, and so he he disguised himself as a young Japanese boy. At this point, he's still a teenager. He disguised himself as a young Japanese boy, stowed away on a Japanese ship and made his way to Japan. He spoke Japanese. And so that, you know, this was right, in some sense right. possible only for that reason. And when he got to Japan, he tried to learn Western science there because it was taught in Jap- in Japan. This is the um, this is around nineteen ten ish. So Japan is already significantly modernized and is a military power. Um, right. And uh, you know he studied Western science there, and at some point he was able to make his way from there to uh, America. And when he got to America, he. Um, he was overjoyed and he describes, you know, um, doing a little dance <laughs> when, he, when, after he first arrived, I think it was in Times Square or something like that. Um, and he, you know, he tried to study science still, that was his, his passion, but basically he wanted to study science because he wanted to like make a difference for Korea. Um, right. and he discovered he really didn't like science at all. And he, but, <laughs> but he loved literature and he was profoundly moved by English literature. Um, you know, Shakespeare and, and Milton were like major, you know, literary mm. influences on him. And so he studied literature and he eventually um, was able to uh, become a professor of literature. And so, you know, he was a professor of English literature in America. <laughs> right, um, right. And he started writing and he wrote uh, books and he made some sort of context in the publishing world and was able to get his books published and got a Guggenheim fellowship in the 30s. He was the first Asian to ever be 
given a Guggenheim Fellowship. And yeah. it's important to understand that in, at this point in America, the Chinese Exclusion Act was law as right. it had been for many decades. And so it was actually not possible for him to become a citizen. It was illegal. Right. Um, and yet he loved America and he, all he wanted to do was to, to teach American culture, to teach English culture, English literature and American literature and um, write in English. Um, he also had the experience a lot of, of people, you know, just having no idea what Korea was. Like people had never heard of Korea. Right. People just thought he was Chinese. Right. And he would constantly have to explain to people like that. No. And they would just not understand. And uh, <laughs> and so he, he he spent the rest of his life more or less in America. He obviously he traveled some. He had a fellowship where he spent some time in Rome for like a couple of years and Germany. Um, and he went back to Korea and he served in the American army during World War Two. Um he was responsible for, since he spoke Japanese, he wrote, um, like, uh, sort of, he, he was like the chief editor for like the, the Japanese phrase book that was given to all members of the U S military wow. serving in the Pacific. And so my grandfather read his phrase book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Wow. Mine too, probably. Yeah. And, um, and after the war, he, uh, served, uh, you know, the, the Americans took over the Southern part of Korea and he went and he served, um, the American military uh, uh, command in in South Korea, and he wrote very movingly about his experiences there, because what he found was that he could not give up on Korea, and he was in love with America, and he moved back to America to live there for the rest of his life. But he was denied citizenship, and despite the support of senators raising these bills in the Senate to try to give him citizenship, to try mm -hmm. to like get do an end run around the Chinese Exclusion Act and naturalize him, um, both of those bills failed. And he was denied tenure. And he was unable to continue to publish his many writings. And starting in the 50s, after the Korean War ended, he um, stopped really being able to make a good living except by lecturing. And so he would wander around from Rotary Club to Rotary Club, giving lectures about Hamlet and like, you know, great English literature and Korean culture, if people were interested. Um, mm -hmm. And that's how he made his money, despite being this incredible, towering academic figure. Um, he wasn't able to get an, a, a university job of any kind. Um, and that's how he spent most of the rest of his life. And since then, you know, I think his writing has become better known among like Asian American authors. And he's often labeled an Asian American author, although it's very complicated, it's isn't like it? More complicated than that. Yeah. Right. And so like, he is also to me a fascinating figure for this, for this, because like he was involved directly in, um, what you might call the American imperial government of South Korea. Right. Um, and as a result, he was sort of he had a very privileged position when he went back there. Um, but he was profoundly devastated by the outcome of the Korean War. That is to say the partition of Korea into two states. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as he put it, like, you know, sons removed from fathers and, and you know, right. mothers from daughters and so forth. Like it's, in fact, I, I wish I, I wouldn't, 
Uh, whatever I, I, I could read quotes from him he's a great writer um, <laughs> right if you want if you're interested in a book of his I recommend East Goes West which is a novel that he wrote that's semi-autobi- semi-autobiographical it's this amazing novel about a guy similar to him who's like this sort of Korean immigrant to America who just like it's like a road novel where he wanders around America and has amazing experiences and you see America through his eyes and it's, it's just a totally fascinating book that is very fascinating Interesting. Again, like someone I've never heard of before and like a really interesting story, but also one that I think like because of the like specific American context of it, maybe for me brings up some more of these questions of like, which I don't think we actually have time to get into right now. I think we'll do more of the post read, but questions of like imperialism and, you know, collaboratorship and like sort of Mm -hmm. like what, like what it means to like be not just of one polity or another, like a citizen of America, but also like working for an American like imperial government somewhere Mm -hmm. else. And like, you know what the sort of like moral valence of some of this stuff is both on a personal level and then at a larger level. Mm-hmm. And so I, I kind of don't want to specifically get into that stuff too much. And I think especially as like, you know, us being like two white dudes talking about it, we should just at least like mention that that's there. And that I think that's something that in the post read we'll have to dig into a little bit further in how it kind of reflects on this book, I think in particular. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot yeah. of there that we're sort of like brushing over because these are like as individual people, really fascinating stories. Mm-hmm. But I think there's also like moral weight to like their decisions and like the way that we look at their decisions that like, Absolutely. you know, it's like complicated and that's worth kind of like interrogating. Absolutely. And, and, and as far as I'm aware, they were all aware of that, too. And Absolutely. they had, they, I'm had sure. they, I'm they sure. you know, were maybe not completely okay with their own decisions. Right. Yeah. And that's where I think this sort of like, this is moral weight, not in like, oh, we should judge them for having done mm-hmm. this, but like a recognition that these are like really hard decisions that get made with both like personal yeah. and larger interests at, at play. Yeah. Um, there was one more guy I wanted to mention. I'm not going to spend too mo- too long on this. I yeah. just want to bring him up briefly uh, because he's a character who I think people will maybe not have heard of, but who's a fascinating person and a real historical person. I keep using As opposed the word... to these other two guys who are super Yeah, no, famous all of these people are real historical people. Um, <laughs> I keep using the word character, though. Like, don't don't be moved by oh, my... Oh, no, I was more saying yeah. that, like, oh, yeah, everyone's heard of these other people as well. <laughs> oh, well, whatever. Anyway, this guy, if you've studied Tibet, you may have heard of him. His name is Gendun Chopal. And he is sort of the towering or one of the towering figures of 20th century Tibetan uh, arts, literature and intellectual history. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, lived in sort of the first half of the 20th century. He died. He, he was born right around the time of the um, Anglo-Indian Tibetan War. And he died right around the time of the uh, uh, People's Liberation Army invasion of Tibet, uh, which is like 1951. Um, so like kind of 1904 to 1951 ish. And so he didn't live that long, but he was an incredible, uh, intellectual figure. And over the course of his life, he spent about a a quarter of his life traveling through India and Sri Lanka. And he wrote, um, among many other things, he wrote a book called in English, uh, grains of gold, which about, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago or so was finally translated in its entirety to English very difficult book to translate or so I've read because it contains like 
because of his own erudition, because Gendon mm-hmm. Chobel's erudition was so extensive that like he, his incredible collection of references to ancient Tibetan classics, ancient Sanskrit classics, modern Indian works, modern right. English works, modern, you know, Sri Lankan Buddhist works. I mean, he was just all over the place. He spoke also a lot of languages very well. He translated from English to Tibetan. And he translated, you know, between a lot of these other languages as well, despite many of them being like his third, fourth, fifth or whatever language. Um, He was Tibetan and he was a kind of miscellaneous academic at a time when, you know, Tibet was relatively like isolated from the rest of the world. Um, Unlike other parts of Asia, it wasn't really colonized because it was just so far away from everything. and, and it had been isolated for such a long time that, like, imperialism came to Tibet relatively late, I think, is, is one way to think about it. Um, by the time uh, Gendon Chopal was young, so, so Gendon Chopal, despite the, the time when he was writing, he was really the first person to write extensively on a lot of modern topics like Western science and, mm. like, modern Indian subcontinent history and the history of British imperialism in India and these sorts of things. He was one of the first Tibetans to write about those things in Tibetan. And he was writing at a time when, when like it was unclear what was going to happen to Tibet and he wanted Tibet for Tibetans and he wanted Tibetan culture to, you know, flourish. Um, and he lived just long enough to see Tibet be invaded by the PLA, um, and then died shortly after. Uh, and so he's, he, he's this other fascinating figure because what's fascinating to him about him, to me, uh, aside from his incredible erudition and his, this, his, his work, which is like totally fascinating for a lot of reasons, is that he kind of has relatively little to do with America. Um, and, and is like just very, very removed from a, an American's typical sort of set of interests. Um, mm. and as a result, you know, I think. And yet, of course, people are familiar with Tibet as this culture that has been uh, massively dominated by, by, uh, by, by Chinese power. culture and and, right. and before that by Indian culture and other and you know mm-hmm. the, it, the, the history of of Tibet is a very run through with with imperialism right. as a theme. One of the interesting things about that too is specifically like that also brings up like Grigor Magistros, like, you know, the, this, this article we read talks a lot about how like he was very well read in a myriad different like cultural traditions. And so like his Mm -hmm. writing is specifically like, you know, he's writing in like Byzantine, but like with like Greek and like Armenian syntax and using like allusions to like all these different like books and different cultures that he's been a part of and read. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's also something that comes up with, like, the takes Kalani literature and, like, you know, gets brought up a lot in the novels, this sort of idea of, like, these multiple cultural illusions and, like, writing in a very, like, illusion-heavy way. Um, I also, the for anyone who lives in New York City or is, you know, ever coming through New York City um, and is interested specifically in the kind of, like, Tibetan or, like, broader Himalayan, like, political and, like, cultural sort of, like, area... Uh, there's a really wonderful museum called the Rubin Museum. Uh, it probably it's like, you know, it's like a two, three hour visit. It's a relatively small museum for New York City. Um, 
but it's all about uh like arts and culture in the himalayan region like going back like you know like three or four thousand years so it's a sort of like span of everything from like modern artists working in like northern india or in tibet to you know like ancient tibetan you know like you know monastery practices to just like all sorts of stuff of like stuff happening in that region um it's a really cool museum and one that's specifically designed to like like one of the f- the permanent exhibit floor is specifically designed to help educate you on how to understand the art throughout the rest of the museum so it's actually like a very mm-hmm. cool experience to go and get to like kind of like learn how to appreciate this like one specific type of art um so i'd highly recommend that for anyone who's kind of interested in these stories and like learning a little bit more about that cultural context that oh man i want to like go my favorite well, I want to go to New York City next. Let's go. Yeah. It's it's, a, it's it's one of my favorite museums in the city. It's really really cool. That sounds amazing. Cool. Well, I think that's probably more or less it for us right now, right? Yep. I feel good about it. There's obviously a lot more we can talk about, but we'll Save talk more next read. time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with the post read episode and talking about this book, a memory called Empire, in depth. Yeah, I think, you know, if you've been interested in anything we've talked about, if you've liked, you know, Yoon-Ha Lee and Leckie, like Max Gladstone, sort of like, you know, writing style, I would say it kind of like fits in with sort of that thing. Um, yeah, it's been it's been an interesting book and we'll we'll talk about it more next time. So, you know, with that, thanks to everyone who's been listening so far. Thanks to WJ for doing our music and Noah Bradley at NoahBradley.com for doing our artwork. Um we're on Twitter at SpectologyPod, uh, or you can email us at, at, at SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Uh, spectology.com is our website. You know, subscribe, rate, review, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, we will talk to you all next time. We will. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, dude. I'm you, Philip. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>